Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of my episode with the brilliant Bridgerton author, Julia Quinn. It was recorded back in 2021 and I was so excited to talk to her. She is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 18 consecutive bestsellers, including Bridgerton. The Duke and I was back in the Sunday Times bestseller list in the year that we recorded this and it was 20 years after the publication of the book. So Julia and her publishers and everyone were just over the moon that people were discovering it again and showing it so much love. And this was, of course, in part due to the fact that in December 2020, Netflix premiered Bridgerton. The novels had been adapted by Shonda Rhimes and everyone loved it. So I was really thrilled to get to talk to her. We spoke about writing, believing in your abilities, and the moment she got the phone call from her agent about Bridgerton being optioned and adapted. So I hope you enjoy this episode and here it is. So I actually just read a brilliant interview with you in Oprah magazine. And I had no idea that not only you have been having this kind of crazy, busy year, but also your husband has as well. Would you just be able to touch on that before we kick off? Because I thought that was just so interesting that he's been doing a lot in the infectious disease area. Yes. So we've, we've each been having our own crazy years, but on total different ends of the spectrum. My husband is a specialist in infectious diseases. Um, at the University of Washington in Seattle, which is where we had the very first COVID deaths here in the United States. So it all started, you know, in our backyard. And I still remember the day after those deaths were announced, him heading out in a lot of PPE and to test some people out in uh, one of the nursing homes nearby. And he was in fact wearing scrubs which kind of shocked everybody into silence because he wears scrubs around the house a lot for, you know, just, I don't know, like everybody else wears sweatpants, but he never wears them to work. He's, he's kind of past that point and he's not a surgeon. So the fact that he was all in scrubs and PPE and, and all that stuff, you know, we just kind of stared at him being like, you know, I mean, to us, that was the signal of a war zone. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't normally start an interview asking someone else about someone else in their a family or relationship, but I just thought it kind of set the the tone a bit more as well about how crazy it all has been. And you must be have gone through a lot together. And people listening might be surprised or intrigued to know that you nearly went down the medical route yourself, didn't you? So I, during my senior year at university, I, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And like many people, I don't no, I still don't know. I was going to say I didn't, but still don't know how to get a job. I mean, who knows how to get a job, right? But I did know how to apply to school. So I thought, okay, well, I'll be a doctor because then I don't ever, ever have to like figure out how to get a job. I mean, it wasn't the only reason I really like science and helping people, but you know, you apply to medical school and then your, your road is set for a while. You don't have to figure out those things. And so what happened was I, because I majored in history of arts, specifically history of architecture, I hadn't taken the science courses that you need to take. And so I spent the next couple years taking these classes and that meant I couldn't hold down a full-time job. So I was working part-time and I still had enough time. I thought, okay, well, I'll try to write a book because I really like to read. And so that's when I wrote my first published novel. And I ended up getting a book deal the same month I was accepted to medical school. 
And I ended up deferring medical school because I wanted some time to pursue writing. I thought it seemed like a good idea. And I, so I wrote for two years. And then I had what I call my mid-20s crisis, which um, what happened was all of my friends were going to graduate school. And suddenly I thought, oh my gosh, if writing doesn't work out, I'm not qualified to do anything, which is just crazy. And it shows you how limited my worldview was. I'd already had three novels published, which is, you know, everybody's dream. And yet I was thinking I couldn't do anything. And so I, I went, I went back to medical school, or I guess I should say I started it. And I, I joke that it was the longest highway with the shortest on-ramp because, you know, it takes forever to become a doctor, but I'd already gotten into school. So it was very easy for me to make that leap into school. And I, I went to medical school for about two, three months before I realized it wasn't the right thing. And I withdrew and I haven't looked back and I'm pretty sure I made the right choice. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, did you have any pushback from anyone like in your immediate circle? I, I'm, I'm just thinking for anyone listening, they might've had people in their family be like, oh no, don't take that route. You, you've got this secure sort of path ahead of you. And actually I think taking risks can really pay off. No, my family was very supportive. Um, you know, my father is somebody who's had many different careers, including as a screenwriter, a, he was somewhere between successful and unsuccessful. I mean, he never had huge success, but he did, you know, sell some things and was able to support himself. And he left a very well-paying job working in banking for that. Um, you know, he has a degree from Harvard Business School, so he is eminently employable. Um, so he got it. And um, my mom was also very successful, although when I did leave medical school, one of her friends said to her, and I still can't believe this, oh, it's okay. She'll be married to a doctor because, <laughs> because my husband, I was already married to him and he was in medical school. And I kind of like to laugh about that because like, you know, if we ever get to the day when he actually out earns me, that'll be fabulous. I mean, I'd be, I'd be the first one cheering. I mean, because, I mean, he never has, because when I was still starting out, he was in school, so he was making nothing. And, you know, we just, you know, as our careers grew, he never caught up. So I, um, I've always been the primary breadwinner in the family, which is, which is kind of fun. Yeah, so fun. And wasn't it your dad who encouraged you kind of when you were younger? I read that you wrote your first novel when you were 12 or something. It's amazing. Yeah, I think, I think it was 13. Um, what happened was uh, it was summer and my parents were divorced and I, they lived on different coasts. My mom lived um, in Connecticut near New York and my dad lived in Los Angeles. And so uh, I was out in LA and I was reading these teenage romances and he was of the opinion that I should probably be reading, you know, Dostoevsky or something like that. But he was trying to be very low key about it and not be ju judgmental. And so he, he said, um, well, you know, tell me why you, you like to read them. So I told him, you know, entertainment and all that stuff. And, and he respected that, but he said, I'm just curious because I'd, I'd love to know if you get anything more out of it. And uh, so what are you getting out of it other than entertainment? So I said, oh, well, vocabulary words. And he said, great. Can you show me a vocabulary word in this novel that you don't already know? And I could not. Um, for all their wonderful qualities, these books were not strong on vocabulary. And so then I said, well, it's research because I, I want to write one. 
And, you know, and I was just kind of making this up as I went along because I really didn't want to have to read Crime and Punishment. And so he said, great. And so that night he sat me down in front of our home computer and we were one of the only people around who even had a home computer. It was 1983. So it was this, it was, it was an Osborne with this tiny little screen that is, um, I know it's a podcast, so people can't see me making my thing with my hands here, but it's, I don't know, maybe a six or eight inch diagonally across and black screen with a blinking green cursor. And we use this program called WordStar. And he said, great, here you go. So my dad said he really expected me to um, come back in about 20 minutes and say, okay, hand me crime and punishment. And, um, but I just stayed in there after about an hour, he came in and I was typing away and I was having fun and I just kept going. And I, so I wrote this entire novel over the course of two summers. And then I decided to try to get it published. And I sent it to the New York publisher of these teenage romances that I really liked. And I wrote what I still consider a very good cover letter in which I explained that because I was 16, which was how old I was at the time, uh, this would be more authentic and real and you know all these things. And I was rejected so fast, it makes your head spin. And knowing what I know about publishing now, I know that nobody read it. I mean, they just, publishing is glacial. They don't, I was rejected, I think, in a week. Nobody gets rejected in a week. It just, it doesn't happen. I mean, somebody saw the cover letter and said, oh, she's a teenager, we're not gonna take a look. And, and then I didn't even try again, uh, which is too bad, except that a couple years later, when I was applying to university, there was a question on the application, which was, please tell us the most meaningful book in your life, and, and write a short essay about it. And so I wrote about the book that I wrote. And I'm convinced that that is how I was accepted to Harvard because there was nothing else about me that was particularly different than anyone else. Um, so I guess it was worth it. <laughs> I know a lot of people say you have to learn how to write or take degrees and all that stuff. And most of my favorite authors, they just, just it, it's like a natural organic thing. Well, I think to some extent, certainly an author's voice, I don't know how you teach that. Um, and I think some people are more natural storytellers than others. But on the flip side, there are certain things that have to be learned. I mean, you have to know how to write a proper sentence. And it is amazing how many people don't know that. And you can get that in any way. You don't have to go to a creative writing program to learn that. Uh, when I was in high school, and, my, and which had a, my high school had a very rigorous English department. And then when I went on to university, I wasn't studying writing. I wasn't even studying English that much, but I had to keep writing these papers about various things. And when you have to write a paper, no matter what it's about, you have to craft a proper sentence. And if you want your paper to be readable and not completely boring, you have to learn how to vary your sentence structure so that it's not the same type of sentence after one after another. Um, and so there are many, many things about writing besides storytelling and voice that are completely learnable and are absolutely essential. And those are things you can pick up anywhere. And what I just absolutely love about you and your writing life is just the fact that something that you wrote 20 years ago is having this whole new 
love affair with a whole new generation. And obviously the Netflix adaptation has kind of brought everything to the surface again. And I had no idea that the books were written in, is it in 2000, the first one came out? Yeah, which means that it was actually written in 1998. And I've kind of had been playing this cinematic story of how it came about because I read that you were literally sitting in Starbucks as you do and you kind of got a phone call and it is sort of every person's dream and I just absolutely love that that happened. It it absolutely did happen. I was sitting in Starbucks um, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to take a very safe and socially distanced walk today with the woman who happened to be sitting next to me when this phone call came. So that's exciting. We were saying we missed each other because we usually end up at Starbucks next to each other. Um, But I was sitting in Starbucks and my phone rang and it was my agent. So I picked it up and he said, have you heard of Shonda Rhimes? And I said, "Um, yes. (laughs) What kind of question is that? And he said, well, I've had the most interesting phone call. And, and it just kind of went on from there. And it, it came completely out of the blue. Um, you know, we were not out trying to sell the books to Hollywood. And, you know, and there would have been no reason to try. Hollywood wasn't doing anything like this. Um, I think, you know, there's Outlander, which I think had come out by then. But even Outlander is a bit different. It's, it's romance adjacent. Um, it's got this whole time travel aspect to it. There's a lot of war scenes. Um, so it's it's in some ways a bigger scope and more, you know, what we think of as a, you know, high concept Hollywood type of production. But nothing that was really purely a romance novel other than a few things on the Hallmark Channel. So it wouldn't have made sense for them to try to, people, the people in Hollywood have laughed at them. So, you know, I had the phone call. I hung up. I called my best friend. She didn't answer. I texted my best friend in all caps, call me. (laughs) She thought somebody died. um, So she did call me right away. And I just kind of thought, wow, could this happen? And then it just kept moving along. And, And I was trying to keep my hopes you know, I'm not down, but, you know, not, not go crazy with it because I, I know a lot of writers in perhaps who write, say, gen, general fiction, not romance, who'll say to me, you know, everything I write gets optioned and nothing gets made. And it's a very common thing for a book to get optioned by Hollywood and then it doesn't go anywhere. In fact, most options don't go anywhere. And the writer just has to say, well, you know what? I still got some money. It's, you know, it's great. And so I was really trying to you know, keep, keep my expectations in check, but every step of the way, something would happen. And I think to myself, I think this is actually going forward. It, they seem very serious about this. And, and it just kept moving along until the next thing we knew, you know, Shonda Land had made a deal with Netflix. And now all of a sudden I was working with Netflix. And then it just kept moving along and along. And, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. I don't know how else to say it. I, I would wish this experience on any writer getting her work adapted. It was just, you know, to quote Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. So incredible. And I was thinking, I wonder if 
it's resonated with us all so much more because we're in lockdown. Well, we are at least where I'm recording from in London at the moment. We've just been stuck inside. And I was thinking, I really miss not gossiping, but I really miss my friends. And I really miss just like sharing information in person. And I feel like it's this Regency Gossip Girl-esque vibe that is making us pine a bit more for that. I don't know. Do you think it's it's come out at a brilliant time, basically? It has. I hadn't really thought about it in terms of that particular angle with the gossip. But, you know, just after 2020, I think we just all needed something that makes us happy. Yes. And, you know, I'm the first person to want to see, you know, a dark, gritty Scandinavian crime drama also. But we had a dark, gritty pandemic sort of the year. And I def- I think people need a break from it. And what I think the show does so well is to take the feeling that you get when you read a romance novel and give that to the viewers. Um, so I'm kind of hoping all these viewers are going to realize that there are there, there's this huge genre of books out there that will give them the same set of feelings they get when they watch Bridgerton, because it really it really is. They really recreated the experience of a historical romance novel. So it really surprised me when um, when I saw some when I think you said that it is very rare that these sorts of novels are adapted. And you think, thank God that this has done so well, because it's like blazing that trail. Like you say, this is a huge genre of amazing stuff. And it must have been quite frustrating for a lot of authors because Downton Abbey and all this stuff is praised. But actually, why not dig into the treasure trove? Downton Abbey, I think, started the road toward this because it's an original piece. Um, In general, most period pieces that get adapted are the classics. Because if you do your own new twist or interpretation of Jane Austen, it's still Jane Austen. And And you immediately have that prestige label attached to it, which filmmakers want. And so Downton Abbey was different in that it was an original piece of writing. And still, that was incredibly praised. It was on, um, you know, in the United States, it's on PBS Masterpiece, which is the signal of quality. And I kept thinking, wow, you know, I wonder when people are going to realize that this isn't exactly a romance novel, but it's pretty similar. You know, and all the people who kept, who who would watch it and say, I love it, but I want more of Matthew and Mary. I'm thinking what you want more is of the romance. You know, we should, but, you know, they just weren't looking. They just you know, we are considered the, you know, low class part of publishing and people didn't want to look there. And so I think it is not at all surprising that it would be a visionary company like Shondaland that would say, hey, wait a minute, there are incredible stories here, incredible female centric stories also, and we can do something with that and we can tap into that. And obviously she was right. That's one of my favorite things ever when things that are thought of as being, you know, beneath some sort of readers are actually turned on its head and shown for what they are, which is incredible stories and money makers and like empowering in so many ways. And yeah, it's such a bugbear, isn't it? When people think that they don't want to read chiclet in quotes, when actually it's really great storytelling. Yeah. And I always tell people, look, I'm not trying to write the great American novel. I'm not setting out to write a book that's going to be studied in people's literature classes. What I am trying to do is to write a book that is very well-written entertainment that will make you happy, that will leave you with a smile on your face. And I think we need to put more value on things like that, frankly. 
um, happiness is important. Totally. It really is. And we need it so much more. I feel like my respect for, you know, people like Shonda Rhimes and people like yourself during lockdown, I, I, I used to see it as just entertainment. Now I'm seeing it as like life fuel, like it's actually getting us through really dark times and thank God it's there. Um, but I wanted to ask you quickly just about that cultural shift, because obviously you wrote them in the 90s and then we're now in 2021. Was there anything that surprised you just about how storylines have been received or just the way society has moved on? Or is there anything that has made you think that's so interesting that it's come out now? Well, yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, if if it had been adapted right when it came out, I don't know that anybody would have had the vision to have cast it the way it was, which I think is brilliant and wonderful. Um, And I'm incredibly grateful for that, actually, because, you know, as I said earlier, the whole idea of a romance novel and the reason people read them and the experience we want to give is a sense of happiness and that everybody deserves a happy ending. And so to be able to cast this show with people of many different races, I think it just is able to visually show to people, hey, everybody gets a happy ending. You can see yourself in this story. And and I love it. I think it's wonderful. And, you know, it's eye-opening for me too, because as I see some response to it uh, from people of color, and just, you know, the happiness that they have and saying, hey, you know, finally I see myself, it's opened my eyes to all the things that have been missing that, you know, I didn't necessarily see because I didn't have to see. And, and so I'm very grateful for the entire experience and I'm grateful for the creative team for doing this. Yes, definitely. And I mean, whilst watching it, you kind of feel like it doesn't need to be this huge talking point either. Like it's just a really beautiful casted show, but it's amazing that it's had all these jumping off points of us talking more about casting and adapting books and, yeah, I mean, it, within moments, I, I don't want to say you forget color because I don't think anybody ever forgets color. You know, you know, people say, oh, I don't see color. Well, if you don't see color, you're negating people. That's crazy. But I think within moments, you forget that color needs to be an issue or a sticking point. It just is. And I think it's just so brilliantly done that way. And I'm really excited that there is a season two coming. I know you can't say much. I can't say much. Um in part because I haven't seen the scripts yet, but having not only read, but written the source material, I can tell you that it's going to be so good um, because it focuses on Anthony, that, you know, we do know that. And I know, you know, his story in the book, The Viscount Who Loved Me, which is uh, the second book in the Bridgerton series. It's a really fun one. And series one set him up so well in terms of everybody loving him, but also just waiting for him to get his turn. I mean, we just want him to be taken down a peg so badly. Oh, and he will. He absolutely will. It's going to be it's going to be great. Can't wait. And for all the listeners who are writers who listen to this podcast because there are a lot, would you mind me asking you just as a last question anything about your writing process because you are so prolific. You write you've written so many books. Are you someone that writes quite quickly? Is there any any small tip you could offer of just things that work for you? Well, it's funny. I don't think of myself as particularly prolific because within the romance genre, I'm considered actually kind of slow because um, I have, you know, I think if I'm going quickly for me, I get one book out per year. 
But I can tell just a little bit about my personal process. Although the most important thing to know is that there is no one right way to write a book. I think it's so important that people get that, you know, and just understand that you're not doing it wrong. You just have to figure out the best way to do it for you. I have friends who outline a book in such detail that the outline is practically a book. I mean, they'll write a 70 page outline for a 200 page book. You know, I'm like, what are you filling in? Um, and then I have other friends who just start with chapter one and start writing and that's it. I'm somewhere in between. I write, I don't want to call it an outline because it doesn't feel like quite the right word, but it's more of a synopsis and a character study. And so I'll write about between 10 and 15 single spaced pages. I have no idea why I make it single spaced when my manuscript is double spaced, it's just to have it. But I, I write about that much and it, I open with just talking about the characters, who they are and what has happened to them before we get to the point where the book has started, because that's very important for me to know. And I will often in that space explore things about those the characters and, you know, come up with things that happen to them that never make it into the book. But if I know, you know, this important thing that happened when they were a child, it, I think it just helps me to create a richer, more three-dimensional character in other ways. So that's important for my process of getting to know them. So I'll, I'll figure out who they are and then I'll, you know, come up with the basic, the plot and then also the conflict, which aren't necessarily the, the same thing and, and how they meet and how it gets started and go through that. And at some point in this synopsis, I guarantee you, I will write the words, things happen <laughs> because I just can't figure out. I'm like, well, we're here and then things happen and then we get to there, you know, because, you know, some of the stuff you kind of have to figure out as you go along. Um, and then eventually I'll start writing. And for the most part, I write chronologically. I start at the beginning and I move through to the end, although I, I will occasionally skip around if I get some sort of inspiration for a scene I know will be there. But for the most part, it's chronological. And then also I uh, edit as I go along. And that's a big part of my process. And one I've tried to, to do differently because I thought maybe I would go faster and it's just impossible for me to do it any other way. And what that means is I'll get started. And before I write any new words, I end up going back several days and looking over again and I'll be tweaking and changing and, you know, usually fleshing out because I tend to write, I tend to underwrite at first and then I fill it out a little more. When what that means is I don't really have a first draft. By the time I finish it, I have gone over everything so many times that it's pretty much done. And then, you know, I'll finish and then I'll go through kind of once more to look for any last typos or awkward sentences or things like that. Um, so I'm constantly looping, making these little loops back. And then a few times in the book, I'll make a big loop back because, you know, say, the book takes you three days to read. It's taken me six months to write. So when I'm in the middle of chapter 17, half the time, I can't even remember what happened in chapter three. And I'll be thinking, have I made this motivation clear? Is this coming out of nowhere? And so I have to go back to the beginning and reread the whole thing and make sure it's cohesive and putting together. So that's, that's pretty much how I do it. Um, yeah. 
I love that. I love that. It's so funny how different everyone is. And I can imagine if you're someone that polishes as you go, I bet you go back and read it and you're like, this is good, rather than like the horrible first draft <laughs> that was just strung together. Um, sometimes. And then sometimes you you also get the stuff where you're just like, oh, clearly I was just plowing through this paragraph to get to the next thing and you're cleaning it up and or yeah. So oh, well, there's there's both. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your books. And it's just been so fun talking to you, seeing as you've got me through a big part of this bleak period of time. So thank you so much. 